Hoosier United Methodist Podcast, episode number 32 with Todd Alcott, author of The Seven Deadly Virtues. That religious leaders had somehow gone astray, and so he's trying to tell his followers, you know, beware of some of these downside of, of the virtuous life because they're really not leading us into a life of deeper dependence on God, but maybe thinking about um, how we become dependent on ourselves or our own power or our own success. Hi, this is Bob Walters, author of The Last Missionary. You are connected with the Hoosier United Methodist podcast with Dr. Brad Miller, doing all the good we can. Welcome to the Hoosier United Methodist Podcast with Dr. Brad Miller. Brad believes that a strong connection in the United Methodist Church is essential to achieving the mission of making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. The Hoosier United Methodist Podcast will help you and your church connect with key insights, hear inspiring stories, and learn from successful pastors and people making a difference in United Methodist Churches in Indiana. And now, here's Brad. Hello, good people, and welcome to the Hoosier United Methodist Podcast with Dr. Brad Miller. I am Brad, and we do welcome you to this episode of the Hoosier United Methodist Podcast, where it is our mission, it is our purpose, to strengthen the connection in the United Methodist Church in the state of Indiana for to live out our mission of making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of of the world. Just about every week uh, when we have our our podcast conversations, I greet you with the phrase good people. One of the reasons I do that is because of one of my favorite uh, quotes from John Wesley. I keep it posted in my home studio and it's uh, one you're familiar with, I'm sure. Do all the good you can by all the means you can in all the ways you can in all the places you can at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as ever you can. Indeed, I not only have that posted in my office, but I also carry it in a coin that I uh, have. Uh, I got it from Cokesbury, just a coin that I keep. I carry around with me to keep a reminder to do all the good that I can. Key phrase there, key word is good, isn't it? We in our United Methodist Church, we seek to be people who do good things, do good, do good stuff for other people, and to be good people. But I want to ask you today, what is the nature? What is the, the nature of being good? What is it to be a good person, to be a good church, to be a good pastor, to be a good layperson? What is the very nature of being good? I think it goes to something we understand as virtues. What is, what, it was, what is it to be known as a virtuous person? But is it possible that the whole nature of virtuous living or being a good person can be manipulative or can be abused or can be skewed or can be viewed by others as being disingenuous? Is it possible that we as Christians, as we as United Methodists, can sometimes come across to others as uh, perhaps holier than thou? Or perhaps, you know, we got it and you don't. Uh, perhaps as we relate to folks who are far from faith or unchurched persons, as we try to reach out to them, sometimes we um, put on airs or we put on a, a facade that sometimes people can see through things that are, you know, less than transparent. That's kind of, that is the focus of our conversation today on the Hoosier United Methodist podcast. What does it mean to be good? What is virtuous? And how can we uh, use, how can we be genuine of that? And how can we be careful about um, how we approach this idea of being good, of being virtuous? Our guest today is a return guest on the Hoosier United Methodist podcast. It's Reverend Dr. Todd Alcott. He is the uh, senior pastor, the lead pastor at the Calvary United Methodist Church in Brownsburg. And he, he's also the author of many books, over 30 titles, lots of articles and, and publications. He's, uh, he's a, just an engaging writer on a basic a full-time basis, as well as, uh, of course, a pastor in one of the, one of the larger churches in our, in our state. 
and he's got a new book that came out in March of 2017. It's all about these issues we're talking about here today, virtues, goodness. The title is The Seven Deadly Virtues, Temptations in the Pursuit of Goodness. Todd is the, uh, you, you can catch up with Todd at, the, uh, at his church website, which is calvaryunited.org, or his personal blog is at toddocult.blogspot.com. And we're going to delve into an in-depth conversation with him, with uh, Todd here today, where we're going to try to understand this whole idea of virtuous living and how it can sometimes be twisted around and be, uh, be deadly, especially in our relationship to other people. It's kind of his take, of course, on uh, responding to what the seven deadly sins are, and we're going to talk about that a little bit, as well as unpacking his book, The Seven Deadly Virtues. And we're also going to have some conversation about being a Christian writer and being a full-time pastor and what that's all about. This is a great conversation, everybody. You're going to want to tune into this, take some notes. There are some things that you can apply to your church and to your life and to your own heart about understanding our own sensitivity of what it means to be a good and virtuous and genuine person. Our guest today on the Hoosier United Methodist Podcast, Reverend Todd Outcott. Let's get into the conversation right now. You can find Todd at his blog, toddoutcott.blogspot.com, or at his church website, calvaryunited.org. Todd, welcome to the podcast today. Pleasure to be with you, Brad. Great, Todd. Hey, Todd, this book that you've got, Seven Deadly Virtues, uh, you're messing with me a little bit, my friend, in that you are somehow or another approaching that there are virtues that are in your title that are deadly, and your subtitle is Temptations in the Pursuit of Goodness. It seems to me in the church, good stuff should be what we're about, uh, that good things is kind of our goal, and it seems to me you're kind of t- twisting this around a little bit. Help, help me out a little bit here. What, are sure. you messing with my mind, or what, what are we doing here? <laughs> Well, it's interesting. When you think about, we've all heard of the phrase, the seven deadly sins. You're right. And so that, those would be very familiar to us. Um, there's been a lot written about seven deadly sins over the years, but a lot of people might be surprised to also learn that when you look back in history, and particularly with uh, the writings of the saints, um, there, there's much also written about the downside of the pursuit of virtues. Uh, for example, St. Chrysostom once wrote that where virtues lie, there are many snares. Um, we can also think about, for example, uh, I think a large portion of what we call the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' teachings. There's a great many things there if you really look at them uh, head on, and really what Jesus was talking about, and particularly who he was talking to. Um, many of the things that Jesus addresses are actually the downside of the virtues that people were pursuing. For example, uh, Jesus talks about beware of practicing your piety or your faith uh, to be seen by others. Uh, well, we can we can really explore that and dissect it and think about what that means. Uh, same thing with um, beware of praying to be seen by others. And then thinking about generosity, um, Jesus warned, beware of, of giving your alms. Uh, show, uh, you know, showcasing your generosity to be seen by others. So that's what I'm doing with this book, is sort of taking some of those, um, t- taking the twist on the seven deadly sins, but turning it around, thinking about the virtues and the downside. I know you kind of touched on some of the things that you mentioned in some of the chapters of your book, but just as a refresher and renewal for me and maybe our listeners, help us, uh, re- remind us again about what the seven deadly sins are. Um, and maybe we can use that to compare and contrast what we're going to be talking about today. Well, let's see if we can name them. You may All have right. to help me. Uh, uh, sloth, uh, pride, envy, um, wrath, wrath, lust. All right. Gluttony. Gluttony. I'm yeah. not sure what this, what's the I don't know. Did you say greed? I don't know if you Maybe did. greed. Maybe yeah. that was it. Yes. There, we agree with it. seven. Well, I guess, you know, what I'm getting at is, you know, it's all those things as we look at those seven deadly sins, we can all, you know, those are relatively uh, easy to say, you know, you don't want to do these. I mean, this is something that's not a good thing. Mm -hmm. And yet we're now taking the approach that 
good things we do, such as to be a, uh, for, for instance, the parallel of, of the sower, it's a good thing to sow the seed, and yet we have different nuances in understanding what was really going on with the sowing of the seed. So let's unpack some of this here a little okay. bit about what, what's going on here. Why, why did you write this book in the first place? What did you learn from the saints that you were studying? And what kind of gave you the, the kernel of uh, interest in this topic? I think it went back to maybe a couple of years ago. I actually did a, a series of sermons on the Sermon on the Mount. And, you know, of course, the, this, that particular part of the scriptures start with what we call the Beatitudes. Um, and, and so those are also something we, that people commonly draw out as being a, a positive side. Of, of that Sermon on the Mount. But then we, when you get into it, really, you start seeing that Jesus was also addressing a lot of the Pharisaic attitudes and the, the idea that, that religious leaders had somehow gone astray. And so Jesus was trying to tell his followers, you know, beware of some of these downside of, of the virtuous life because they're really not leading us into a life of, of deeper dependence on God, mm -hmm. but maybe thinking about um, how we become dependent upon ourselves or our own power, our own success, these kinds of things. So the book really was was kind of an impetus of um, uh, thinking about, again, comparing, contrasting to the seven deadly sins. It seemed like Jesus was sometimes just, and for lack of a better term, I'll say, was kind of speaking against the holier-than-thou approach that, yes. that's, that the Pharisees had. And, and it's your sharing with us that, this is something for us to watch out for in our own lives. The sense that you know, I got it and you don't. That uh, somehow that what you know, I'm a a, a one-up relationship type of thing. Is that part of what we're getting at here? It is. And I, in fact, one of the first uh, stories that I tell, especially in the chapter on faith, and we maybe have all had these these conversations. We've all had these experiences where it was many years ago, but I met uh, a nurse in a hospital who basically after um, I had visited with a patient, one of my parishioners. Uh, she began to administer what I would call a litmus test, mm. a series of questions about faith, and I didn't measure up. Mm. You know, I, I wasn't I wasn't a part of her understanding of, of the Christian faith. Uh, I didn't I didn't measure up to her her standards of belief and you know her her idea of what a Christian should be. So, I think we've we've all had some of those experiences, but then also get to thinking about. You know, where have I um, maybe expressed the Christian faith in some way where I've misused my power or my authority or my faith in a way that, whereas trying to lift up my own faith, that I've disparaged the faith of somebody else? It seems like this is one area, and I know that I've had that those experiences too, where someone has supposedly tried to, you know, witness to me and really didn't take any time to even consider where I was coming from at all, and there's probably been, I know there have been times when I have come off condescending and so on to other folks, thinking I've got it going on. So this is part of what you're saying here, but I think it also goes to an understanding of Christian piety, yes. of, uh, and maybe Wesley's view of piety. We think of, you know, uh, piety can also lead to pious, you know, and that can have a negative connotation as well. And I know that you talk about that in some, some in your book here, especially about in your chapter, you talk about having your own faith without destroying the faith of others. A little bit of a balancing act, right? It is. And another good word there might be that we're not trying to be righteous ourselves. We It's not self-righteousness that we're after, mm. but we're seeking the righteousness of God. Righteous um, over self-righteousness. Yes. Tender areas, aren't they? They are. Wow. <laughs> One of the other things that you... Uh, talk about it, I think it was kind of interesting and I basically in your book you had seven chapters that were kind of in a way your responses to these virtues that can be twisted in some way or another and you say something about family in one of your uh, chapters here about how in a way the sense of family can be distorted uh, in, in a sense uh, in terms of how we approach uh, Christianity say a word about that about how we can understand family well, I think family today in, in our society, uh, it seems like family can just take over everything. Um, and we see this also just within uh, the 
social network of the church, how many times as pastors we struggle with finding, helping people to find connections within the family of God that can help them within, within their own families. But oftentimes, you know, the, the pursuit of just family gatherings or, you know, things that you know, teenagers are involved in or children are involved in. And Youth that can sports, just, that can music, just, can just travel, over. all kinds of things, right? Uh, right. And then I've had a lot of experiences and a lot of conversations with people over the years where they've, they've pointed out that the church for them really has become their, their family, their spiritual family. And so sometimes we think about the flesh and blood ties that we have, but we also in the church understand that our, our ties through the waters of baptism mm-hmm. are deeper still. So I think a lot of people in our society too today are looking for connections with family because the family's broken in so many respects. So the church can have a very much more of a prominent place, I think, in, in people's lives if we will seek that. Mm-hmm. Do you think perhaps Jesus, when he talked about such things that are sometimes uh, uncomfortable uh, past uh, words of Jesus, when he talked about, you know, leaving your father to follow me and so on, does that speak to this a little yeah, bit? It certainly does because a lot, of, a lot of the things that Jesus said, when we look at them just at face value, they seem to be anti-family. Right. Uh, you know, there's that story in I think it's in Mark's gospel where Jesus is teaching uh, and it's a small confined area and somebody says, hey, your, your mother and your brothers are standing outside. They're here to see you. And he says, but who are my mother and my brothers? Right. They're those who do the will of my father. So, uh, you know, Jesus certainly had a, a broader understanding, I think, of, of family and the spiritual ties mm-hmm. of family. So like the, the, and the, the key to this is relationship. Yes. Deep, abiding, meaningful personal relationship, whether yes. it's in your blood family or in your church family or in your the broader scope of you know, humanity, I guess. Absolutely, and it right. goes back, and a lot of times, you know, early Christians called each other brother and sister. There's mm-hmm. still traditions, tribes of, within the church that still do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so these family connections, uh, we don't have to necessarily just always think of them as flesh and blood connections. Well, that's very important, I believe, but yet sure. at the same time, we brought, we want to broaden that in our understanding of, uh, of the church, you know, the body of Christ, right. that we're, we're hands and feet and voices all together, and uh, that's, what, that's what we're after. When we talk about families, often we talk about, um, you know, those loving relationships. I know you, you touch on love in your book, about the difference between loving the way we want to love and loving the way... God wants us to love. Tell us a little bit more about what you were trying to get at there. Well, it seems that when we explore love, there's so many different expressions of that word that we find at play in our society. I mean, we've got, we've got music, we've got movies, there's all kinds of portrayals of what love is. But yet when we talk about agape love, you know, mm. what the gospel love, um, C.S. Lewis had a book called The Four Loves that he wrote, you know, decades back, but where he explores these different nuances of love and then talks about, you know, the love that we're really after as Christian people is the agape love, which is the self-emptying, the self-denial type of love. And even in um, our most intimate relationships like parenting or in marriage, that's, that's sometimes very difficult to achieve. I mean, people sometimes love to produce something for themselves or that, you know, they want to receive something in return for that love, but agape love is very different from that. It's right. it's it's the giving of, of love regardless. It's unconditional. Yeah, it's the who's the who's the focus of the love? Is mm-hmm. it about, about self love, you know, self uh, adulation, or expressing love to God and to others? Yeah, and that kind of goes this idea of transforming us from the self love to love of God and others leads me to another thing that you talk about in your book, and it really goes to a sense that to something I think is a real issue in our society now and among a lot of people, and it goes to uh, the sense of entitlement that folks have at, at times. And you talk about uh, about this, you, the title of the chapter you said at this, talked about this, and was the power of one or the power of the one. Uh, entitlement, power of one. What do you got to say about that? 
Well, there's a great many things that we hear about today. There, you know, there's all of this, and some of this may tie into the, the idea that we have a success, is that so often we pursue personal success or individual success without really thinking about the broader implications of what, what does that really mean to be successful, whether we're seeking something uh, for ourselves. Um, and so we're really thinking about, in terms of our faith, the faith that we're really trying to pursue is that we're putting our, our faith and our trust in the power of the one rather than the power of ourselves. Um, so I, I, try to, I try to explore that a little bit more because I think we do live in a time when there are so many voices out there that are telling us to pursue our own success. And you know, people are sort of sometimes do anything to get that. Right. Rather than seeking, you know, what, what, asking the question, what is God's way? What is it that God's desiring? Yeah. And that kind of leads us to uh, a deeper understanding of grace, mm -hmm. uh, I believe, in terms of um, the nature of our motivations, or our motivations around ourselves, or, or do we need to just put ourselves out there and just be dependent on God's, upon God's grace. Can you talk a little bit about that when you talk about uh, success and grace? Success is a real potent temptation in our society, isn't it? It is. I think it's probably one of the most potent. Um, it, it even touches, I believe, pastors, the church leaders. Of course. Uh, there's always the temptation, I think, to place oneself on the pedestal or to, to be admired in some way uh, for other people to see us as being successful um, or you know you serve a successful church you have a, a pulpit where people you know are listening to what you have to say I'm sure it happens to you every week as it does oh, to sure. me and most pastors where somebody you can count on them almost every week pastor that was a tremendous sermon yes <laughs> or you are I love you so much you're the greatest ever and yet, yeah, that may be one or two out of 25%. Absolutely. <laughs> and Brad, I'll share a quick story here. There may be some in our conference who may remember uh, Paul Stevenson, who retired right. many years ago. But I, Paul was uh, something of a mentor to me when I was very young, uh, green, starting out in pastoral ministry. And I remember uh, there were times when we would meet for lunch, and we would, he would ask me, how are things going? And I would share, um, well, somebody, somebody gave me a great accolade this week shared how, how wonderful the sermon was. And then there were other people that were beating me up and saying, uh, wow, th this was no good. You, you could have done so much better here. And, and Paul pointed out, don't believe either one of those things. <laughs> you, you know, you're never as great as you think you are, and you're not as bad as you think you are. Yeah. You know, it's the, the truth is somewhere in between. That, good good, the, good advice. God's grace. Good advice from the seasoned, uh, mm -hmm. seasoned veteran in there. And I think part of the thing is, if we start to believe our headlines, so to speak, we can become lazy or complacent. Mm -hmm. uh, we can rest on those and simply not work hard enough. Um, you, you think that's going on? As we look at our church nowadays, do you think this may be an issue that we're dealing with, uh, complacency? And that complacency may go back to also the, the feel, a feeling of, of helplessness or hopelessness for many people. Right. Is that what difference does it make that I put forth effort or, you know, to strive for something that is um, the, God's path? How, how would I know what that is? Perhaps that doesn't make any difference whether mm -hmm. I pursue it or not. Right. That kind of goes how we perceive success, too. If, uh, if we're pursuing God's path, uh, the path to God's success may or may not be what the world sees or conference statistics show or this type of thing, how we uh, understand success. Yeah. Well, as United Methodists, maybe we have a, a greater temptation than many other denominations in that we are so numbers oriented. I mean, right. we, we keep our statistics. I mean, we have a method. Right. Our, <laughs> we have a method to everything we do. And so we're always looking at, you know, where, where is our growth curve? What, you know, how, how is our budget shaping up? Um, where is it that we're finding those 
seemingly vestiges of success that indicate that we are on the right path. And it does take a lot of grace. It takes a lot of understanding of, of grace to, to be able to, especially to live and to minister in at times and in situations where maybe we don't have the numbers hmm. that seemingly to support you know what right. what's what's going on. We right. know in the lives of people. Sure. Todd, what you talk about a lot in this book is how we uh, our virtues uh, are something to be strive for, to be sure, to be to be careful about. Um, so we're talking a little bit about here about understanding what it means to be a good person in a biblical Christian model. Help define that for me. What is a good person? Well, it's that is another that is another one I explore in the book at length is the, the pursuit of goodness. And there's that passage in the Gospels. Where I think it's the young man who comes to Jesus oh, and tries right. to justify himself. Mm -hmm. And uh, he calls Jesus good. And Jesus says, there is no one good but God alone. Now, that's that's a fascinating teaching. Only God is good. C.S. Lewis also pointed out that no, always through the scriptures, it's the only only thing that we say about God is only God is love. We may have love, but only God is love by, their, by very definition. So God is good by very definition. And so when we're thinking about our faith, a good person would be, I think, someone who's resting upon uh, that grace in the goodness of God, that we're not, we know that we're not good, that we're never going to be good enough, no matter what we do, right. no matter what, how we pursue uh, God, that we are looking for, for God's goodness. I think that also the Apostle Paul mentions this many, in many places, that we are striving to in the fruits of the Spirit. So our fruit really comes from God also. Uh, that those things which we pursue by faith, uh, we're, we're looking to, to God's fruit, not to our own fruitfulness, our own successes, mm -hmm. but it's God who gives the fruit. To be totally dependent on God's goodness as the framework for our goodness. Yes. Is why I'm understanding what you're and, saying And I, here. I think if you if you really cut through the, the bottom of the Sermon on the Mount and you look at the foundation that Jesus is talking about there, that's exactly it, is that, that dependency that we have on the grace and the goodness of God. We're not called to be successful. We're called to be faithful. Yes, Mother Teresa said that, didn't she? Oh, good. Yeah. I knew I heard it somewhere <laughs> good. So that, that's good. And uh, yeah, well, that's uh, one of the things that uh, I believe is going on here. And I think you talk about it in your book is that um, we are privileged people and we do have the ability to be self-sufficient to a degree, but that's not the best life. The best life, a virtuous life, is one where we are dependent and get our our goodness out of that re relationship. Let's talk about uh, stuff. Let's talk yeah. about stuff in terms <laughs> of being good. Okay. Yeah. Stuff as in our our money, our stuff we have, our homes, our churches, our cars, our things that we have in terms of of measurements of goodness in some regards that we have in our society and our world and in some regards how people regard that in terms of the more good things that they can do or give that they feel like this is somehow an indicator of my level of goodness mm -hmm. um, this is I'm thinking about the people who like to give a lot of um, stuff and then but really be noticed for it mm -hmm. Are you with me on this? Great temptation, yeah. A great temptation. I'll give you one example out of my, my career, and then you, why don't you speak on a little bit. You, you, we've all been in churches where there's uh, somebody's got a nameplate on everything, right? Yes. You know, where this, you know, this pew is dedicated to so-and-so and so-and-so. And, -so. and uh, I, uh, or this, you know, this jar of, you know, whatever it is, all kinds of stuff, silly stuff. But one of the ones I saw one time was an altar table which had a nameplate on it, and the altar table, I'll just use my name, but it wasn't my name, was known as the Brad Miller Altar, all right? <laughs> instead of, so just kind of like, oh man, this is, you know, that nameplate 
I just didn't feel good about that being there. No matter how much money they paid for it, whatever it was. Sure. I unpack this for me a little bit in terms of how we deal with this whole nature of stuff and in, in a relationship to giving to the church. We need that, of course. But how, how do we make sense of this? Oh, well, of course, as pastors, I mean, we, we want people to be generous. Right, of course. Uh, we, we, we strive to help people to be generous servants. I think some of this just goes back, you know, we have such a rich history in America with the Protestant work ethic. And, you know, the early Protestant, the, the Puritans, pardon me, but the Puritans believe that, you know, the, the outward signs of God's election were that you would have all this stuff, that God was going to bless you and bless you richly with, with you know, lands and family right. and many other things. And yet at the same time, when we really start to dissect that, we understand now, I think, that you know, there's a lot of different ways that people can obtain stuff. <laughs> right. Uh, and, and some of it doesn't necessarily mean that we're uh, being blessed by God, but we're, we may be able to pursue those things through unscrupulous means as well. Uh, so these are these are great temptations. How we how we manage in the church, especially to to grapple with that, and I think we always have to hold it in tension with uh, with seeing that there the success is yes can be a great temptation, but also at the same time we do want to have generous hearts, uh, and Jesus points this out too about the. The, the wonderful story of the widow right. who gave the one mite, but she said, but he said, but she gave more than everybody. So, you know, how can we give sacrificially? How can we give generously without drawing attention? Sure. To now, if I remember correctly in that story, the widow gave her her gift of the widow's mite humbly, where the others were making a big show yes. of their giving. Yes. So, I think that goes to what we're talking about here today. It does. Yeah. Good. Hey, uh, uh, Todd, it's. Um, you have been privileged to do something I really want to do sometime, but it seems like it was a, a part of what's going on in your life. You were able to do the pilgrimage at Camino de Santiago in Spain. Uh, just talk about that a little bit in terms of also how that may have influenced some of this thinking about uh, the nature of goodness. That was a remarkable experience, uh, walking the Camino, because there were thousands of people on the Camino from all over the world. Um, not all of them were Christian people. Not all of them were walking for the same purpose. Some were just out there for exercise. Yet at the same time, um, I found that as I continued to walk the Camino, especially and to find, you, you could leave behind some of, again, some of the trappings of, of life and of ministry, but just to be in the moment, to be in the day, was, was really a remarkable experience, but it was also a humbling experience. And out of that, I would say there were a couple of experiences that I had that um, have continued to shape me. One was that the realization that uh, every day really is a gift from God. You know, we, we don't create our, our day. <laughs> we don't create our lives. We are, in so many respects, truly dependent upon God, totally dependent, because God is the giver of all good gifts. And then secondly, just being aware of my blessings and not I'm talking about, not talking about stuff here but just relationships and the gift of the church and I'm thinking about the church with the big C right not just the United Methodist Church not my congregation sure but, you know the church that as it has existed through all of time because having met so many people on the Camino it was a remarkable experience to, to talk to folks and learn about what shaped their faith and why their belief is, it was a remarkable experience. Kind of uh, put you in a position of needing to go deeper to deal with our own personal piety, so to speak, like we talked about earlier. And it seems to me what we're talking about here is we talk about goodness and not goodness. The core of it is an understanding of sin, mm -hmm. understanding of our own sinful nature and perhaps the sins of uh, the church and things like that. Uh, we're dealing with some things in our church right now, the United Methodist Church, which are very difficult things uh, to deal with. Um, just recently, we're, we're talking in uh, May of 2017, just recently our Judicial Council in our church made some rulings uh, regarding one of our uh, bishops, Bishop Karen Olavito, and it was ruled that uh, given her sexual orientation that uh, 
she was not within the uh, uh, understanding of the laws of the church, and yet it was also said that she remains in good standing uh, with the, within the church. And as I look at some of the responses to that, I have heard people basically on both sides of that say, there's sin here. Both sides are kind of saying the other side is sinful. Um, what's going on here? How can we come to some terms with this? I just like your take on this. I'm sure. not sure we're going to come to any you know, definitive conclusion. I'd like your take on how we understand sin in the church when there are kind of different perspectives coming at issues. And both say they're good. Yeah, absolutely. And again, I, I think one of the things that I think we can say about the United Methodist Church, church we love, is that maybe unlike some other denominations, we still have this tendency and this ability to hold these things in tension. Yes, it may eventually divide the church, but there's something to be said, I think, for the for our ability to to continue to talk about these things. What what is sin? What is grace? How do we understand grace? Mm -hmm. But then also, what is it that we really want to lift up as being the core of Christ's teachings? Mm -hmm. I think that maybe is, is something that we're still grappling with. Mm -hmm. Is you know what what is it we really want the world to know about Christ and about His love? What is, what is grace and how do we how do we take that and, and offer it to the, to the world around us. And so while at the same time we're, we're talking about something that's very specific, and that's, mm -hmm. in another sense we're talking about something that's also broad sure. in, a, in terms of just our understanding of, of tradition. It's of, kind of broad Bible. and deep at the same yes, time, doesn't it? It is. Yeah. It certainly is. And yet uh, it seems to me that as we have this paradox which is going on here, um, it seems to me that we just need to magnify grace. We just need to take that whole thing of us, our Wesleyan view of grace and magnify it. I know that uh, I've, I'm thinking of how Wesley would say we need to be uh, uh, submitted to the vile, sub, sub, submit myself to the vile, vileness of, of people in order to save them. And perhaps, I don't know, what's your take on that, that maybe we need to be thinking about how this appears to the unchurched of the world, how this appears to the folks who need the Lord who don't have the Lord. I don't know. Where are you at? It is. And I, one of the things that I get into a little bit here in the book is that so often I think that people who are, we use this expression, who are outside the church, looking at the church from the outside, um, and who are wondering, what, what's this Christian faith all about? Um, you know, a part of our witness really is how, how do we live in God's grace, but how do we do it together? And because people are really looking for authenticity, they're looking for real relationships, and how we, how we live that out, not just how we argue about it, but you know how we really live it out in terms of how we're offering that grace to the poor and the marginalized, and even those who are looking for, for answers in their lives. I think it's, that's the key. That's the, that's the yeah. thing we really seems like somewhere along that, in this way of thinking, perhaps there's some way forward in our church. I hope there's a way forward. Good. I know that's our, yeah. <laughs> that's uh, what our bishops will be grappling sure. with here for the next couple of years. But What is the hope for I, our church? What do you see as hopeful signs for us? I would just go back to, which is what I try to preach every week, is, uh, is Christ and his love. Uh, we are Easter people. Right. We believe in hope. You know, we're, we're trying to offer hope to, to the world and hope to people who are in hopeless situations. And so I really think that the, the core of my theology and understanding of Scripture, tradition, church, is that you know, we're, we're trying to lift up Christ and his love and share that with the yeah. world around us. Lift high the cross, huh? Lift high the cross. Absolutely. Cool. Uh, Todd, I want to kind of shift gears on you just a little bit here. You are, uh, this book, uh, uh, The Seven Deadly Virtues, I'm not sure how many talents you've got out there now, but a whole lot, right? And you've probably got two or three more than that writing projects you're working on right now. I do. <laughs> uh, I know you got a lot of stuff going on at the same time, and you pastor a 
a, a large suburban uh, church with a lot of activities going on. And I know one of the things we deal with in our Wesleyan world is discipline. And I would just like for you to say a word about your, uh, your discipline, either your daily disciplines or how you do be a prolific writer and, you know, you have a family life and a marriage and you travel and you like to do some other activities and go to restaurants and things like that. Sure. So, I'd like to hear a little bit about your discipline in terms of how you were able to pump out uh, some prolific writing. Well, for me, I, I guess it all started when I was so young because I can remember where I was uh, when I was 12 years old, sitting on the front steps of our home and deciding I was going to be a writer. But really, out of from that time on, uh, I, I really think I have been able to maintain a discipline around writing. And it might be one of the only places in my life where I can actually say I really am a Methodist <laughs> when, right. it, when it comes to writing. Methodical, right? I am very methodical. And uh, you mentioned that I have other writing projects that I'm working on currently, and I do. Uh, I'm, I'm working on three other books. And so what I do each day is I, I break that down. I know when my deadlines are. This is when I have to have the book produced. And then I can just go back and mathematically divide that out by the number of days, number of weeks. And so I'm literally just taking a number and saying, I've got to, I've got to produce this number of words today, or I've got, I've got to write this many pages today, or whatever. And so it's just a breakdown of, doing that through a regimen every day. And I, I tend to write um, either very early in the morning or later at night. Um, there's many times when I'll come home uh, after meetings at church. It might be 7, 8, 9 o'clock at night. But even if I can get an hour or two writing in every night, that's my that's my goal. All right. And it sounds like uh, you were able to really focus when you were able to uh, get that hour or two of writing in. Managed some sort of way to eliminate distractions and get things cared for. I, I might I might have a, a deeper uh, ability to concentrate. I remember when my children were young. Um, I remember holding both my son and my daughter on my knee and writing books. And my wife would come home and say, "Don't you hear them crying?" <laughs> and I'm like, you were out. You were zone. I'm in the zone. I'm in the zone. No, I don't hear them crying. I did not know that they needed to have their diaper changed. <laughs> <laughs> I'm literally sitting here with them on my lap writing this book. So I, I maybe it goes back to those times when I just sure. had to shut everything out. But well, that's cool. Well, I think uh, uh, I think this deep work is what people need to have in order to really get stuff done. It's really a skill that not a lot of people have. You know, this whole thing of focusing and concentrating. Something to be said for that. I think that's some attribute of our of our Westland understanding of discipline, which is a real attribute that we can highlight here. You love writing. You love authors. You love books. You love what that's about. In terms of people that you've been influenced by as authors or writers or uh, influential thinkers, if you had the opportunity to go off on some mountaintop retreat with uh, – <laughs> two or three of other writers or thinkers, and you're going to write a book together. You're going to have a collaborative writing project, which is going to make that you, the intention is to have an impact, a significant impact on society or the world or the church. Who are you going to meet with? Who are you writing with? And what are you writing about? Wow. Now that, that no one's ever asked me that before. Um, you know, an author that I, I still mourn for his passing is John Updike. I think he was the greatest living American writer when he was alive. Of course, he's dead now, but um, nobody wrote like John Updike. Uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't even go so far as to say he was an influence, although I, I think I've read most of his books. But I um, guess I can't write like John Updike. Another. Another. I'm, I tend to also try to be a very creative person, and quite frankly, I write a lot of other material too, like science fiction, uh, I write mysteries, but Ray Bradbury mm. was another uh, individual who I, I, I've loved reading his, his works, uh, very creative, you never knew what you were, gonna, what you were really reading when you read a Ray Bradbury story, uh, how it was going to end. Um, there, then there's just other authors uh, that have had that, that kind of uh, are inspirational in their, in their own way. Um, 
Oh, some of the, some of the more recent writers. Uh, C.S. Lewis, you know, he he was much more of, of a, a writer who had a great deal of diversity than mm -hmm. what people realize. I mean, he wrote science fiction. He wrote, uh, you know, children's books, many other kinds. Um, so he he's I think he's been an influence. And I can think of others, maybe short story writers. And hey, what what kind of things would you write about with these folks? What would I write? Mm. You know, people always ask, "What what do you write about?" And I say, "I I write whatever I want to write that day. Okay. Um, it might be it might be nonfiction. It might be a story that I'm working on. It could be a poem. Uh, it might be finishing up a chapter of a book, but." Um, every day is different, and there's things that if it doesn't hold my attention, I move on to something else. So it just depends on the day and how the mood strikes. And what these other people would be, uh, their mood as well, I assume. I, I think so. Yeah. What is one more thing, Todd? If uh, if my wife and I were going to go to your house for, for <laughs> dinner, and you're cooking, or you're doing, you're taking care of the meal, whatever, um, what are we having? And what are we going to do after dinner? What are we going to talk about? What activity are we going to be involved in? Okay, we're, what we're going to do is, uh, hey, if you're coming over, we're going to get some good steaks. All right. We're going to have Sounds a bar good. We're going to have a barbecue, and then we're just going to have a quiet evening because my wife and I like this, especially this time of the year in the summer. We enjoy our back deck, and so we we just go out on the back deck, and maybe if you're into these things, we'll open a bottle of wine. Sounds good. We'll have a good, a good bottle of wine and just uh, sit around the table and talk. Excellent, excellent. Simple as that. Which is what we've been doing here today, having a good, good talk together. And our, our guest here on the podcast today has been uh, Reverend Todd Alcott, author of many books. We've been talking today primarily about the seven deadly virtues, and we thank you for your time here on the podcast. Thanks, Dr. guest today on the Who's United Methodist podcast has been Reverend Todd Alcount from the Calvary United Methodist Church in Brownsburg. I enjoyed our conversation. I hope that you did too. And I learned a lot. I learned a lot about unpacking and understanding what it means to be a virtuous and good person. And I understand sometimes how I may uh, come across as uh, less than genuine to especially unchurched folks. And, you know, friends, if we're going to be a, a church that truly connects into our culture, especially if we want to reach younger groups of people who are, for whatever reason, have been inoculated from the church, one of the things we have to do is to be genuine, to be real, to be truthful. And let's understand that uh, this whole sensitivity to good and goodness uh, has to be something that we have to work on and get, get better at in terms of being really real about our faith and not put on any, uh, any uh, errors at all. And let's understand that sometimes things can be, um, uh, you know, we can be seen right, right through. I really love what Todd taught us about, uh, you know, when being good enough in terms of our human standards uh, is not really what it means to be uh, as good as God, because God is still good all the time. And let's understand also the primacy of grace in all this, that God's grace supersedes everything else. And that we don't have to be uh, good as a church and as individual Christians so much as we have to be faithful. We have to draw onto God's uh, faithfulness and goodness as a source of our goodness and not draw on our own stuff. I just love the, loved a lot of what uh, Todd was teaching us here today. And, you know, I just think we need to have some of this sensitivity about you know, drawing on God's uh, goodness as we deal with some tough issues in the United Methodist Church as we move forward with some of the decisions being made by our judicial council and so on, and there's people falling on all sides of these issues, aren't there? And we tend to sometimes we tend to uh, uh, call people, you know, understand what someone else's take is on things as being uh, far apart from us in terms of being not good. Isn't it possible that we, there could be good people on all sides of an issue, and that we need to just try to find a place to find what God's place is to be? And for us all to be faithful, uh, faithful people, uh, there is, yeah, there is paradoxes to be sure, you know, in our in our church and our lives. But let's uh, really try to be genuine in our understanding of what it means to be a good and virtuous person, and to understand that there are some uh, temptations that we can fall into, and that uh, 
We've got to watch out for that. Seven deadly sins, to be sure. But also, there can be the deadly virtues that we talked about with Todd. With all this, we do all this, friends, in order to give us some, uh, some resources and some background that we can use in our local churches. I think perhaps uh, this book, The Seven Deadly Virtues, could be a sermon series, for instance. There is, at the end of each chapter in Todd's book, are some questions and some, uh, some uh, discussion starters. You could use that in small group settings or perhaps in, a, in Bible studies or teaching elements. And I think there's some things that we, we can do with this, uh, with this concept here. We can apply it to our church. So what we try to do here in the Hoosier United Methodist uh, podcast is we tr- try to provide uh, tools and help can strengthen the connection in the, in the United Methodist Church in the state of Indiana and beyond. And you can go to our website, HoosierUnitedMethodist.com, and get connected to us there. We also have a, have a Facebook page, Facebook.com slash Hoosier United Methodist. And we can be in conversation with one another there. And we have a group as well, a Facebook group. And let's, let's continue this conversation. If you have folks that you think it would be good for, uh, for me to talk to, to uh, share good things that are happening in the church, our good people, then uh, let's talk. Get a hold of me through the website, uh, and, and you can do, do that, or through the Facebook page, and we can be in conversation with some of that. As we, strength, as we certainly do strength, uh, seek to strengthen the connection in the United Methodist Church in the state of Indiana. And indeed, let, let's just remember, we are followers of Jesus Christ first and foremost, who was the best, right? He, following Jesus, is a good thing, first and foremost. And then the founder of our, founder of our particular uh, tribe of faith here, John Wesley, he did say that those good words about being a good person, and let's take that to heart, to do all the good you can, by all the means you can, and all the ways you can, and all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as ever you can. That's our mission here at the Hoosier United Methodist Podcast. We'll see you next time when we have another great interview and more conversations that that are designed to strengthen the connection in the United Methodist Church in the state of Indiana. We'll see you next time. Good people. Thank you for listening to the Hoosier United Methodist Podcast with Dr. Brad Miller. We challenge you to be an active listener by subscribing and becoming a vital member of the Hoosier United Methodist Podcast community. Visit us on the web at HoosierUnitedMethodist.com and chat with other members at Facebook.com slash Hoosier United Methodist. Until next time, continue to make disciples and transform the world.